0: You know someone who is affected by infertility, even if you don't know that you know him or her. You could be affected by infertility. So as I speak from the book of Judges, having arrived at chapter 13, expositing what the text says, it's going to bring us face-to-face with one one of those seldom addressed but often experienced issues. You may not yet be married, but one day, if it's God's will, you will be, and you could then face issues of infertility. If you are married, you've already had lots of kids, praise God, that's amazing. Guess what? This applies to you too, because you know someone who struggles with infertility. So as we address this text, we will address infertility And it will equip you, if nothing else, for for the day that you may face this struggle. And it will equip you to better pray for and minister to someone you love who is facing this issue. But first I want to address a doomsday myth because this is something that the secular world puts on couples who want to have children, but due to physiological obstacles are not yet able to there's, there's an organization called Population Matters and they purport to tell people the facts. They, they rightly observe that the global population increases by about 80 million every year, that it took until the early 1800s for the population to reach 1 billion and now we're already at 8 billion. They see this is leading to disastrous contributions toward climate change and the, the destruction of the planet. They say that having babies is destroying the planet and their solution is abortion. And so what they propose is that the murdering of unborn babies saves the world. They view themselves as saviors of the world while advocating that people kill their own children. This, this is something else too. The the UN seems shocked by the basic sum of mathematics having having added up the number of people, they came to the conclusion that there are as many people as there are. And they then incited a sense of crisis. And then, you know, uh, just just guess what uh, the big takeaway was? It was this huge non sequitur dealing with what's called overpopulation. That's, that, that's seen as a, as a, a Buzzword in the discussion for one thing, because if you talk about overpopulation and you are a leftist, if you are a liberal, then typically actually that's that's considered a word that is racist. And so they attribute it to conservatives. Say they say, no, conservatives are the ones who talk about overpopulation. What they mean by overpopulation is there are too many people of that race that I don't like, and so we need to curb the population. But what's funny is that conservatives are the ones having babies. Right. Uh, we are the ones <laughs> who are populating the earth. I saw one critique of overpopulation that genuinely, truly, not making this up, showed stats on the weight of all the human bodies on the earth. This, by the way, even if I were even if I were like a diehard atheist, I would have to point out like that the, the law of conservation of matter. It, it, like, it doesn't add any weight to the earth, and, and also the earth's fine, okay? The earth's fine, it can handle all the weight, but I also see a lot of talk about uh, biodiversity. This is brought up oftentimes. Overpopulation decreases biodiversity. I've seen the same argument in five different articles, and what they say is that when people are, when people, every time a baby's born, we have to cut more trees down, and then that leads to a decrease in the number of species that are out there. Okay, look, I know every inch of Tiger Mountain, okay? I love that mountain better than any hippie you know, okay? I love that mountain. I've been on every trail except for the double black diamond called Predator. I would die on the first drop in on that trail but I've been to every summit, I know every inch of that tree. I live on it, my house, I own a piece of it, okay? That's where I live, that's my home. The kids can spot Tiger Mountain, they say like, that's where we live. I love that mountain, it has been partially deforested. I like those parts of the mountain because I can see farther. Also, I can firsthand tell you that they plant more trees than they cut. You know who else is planting trees faster than humans are? Trees. Everywhere. The amount of foliage in the United States has increased by 30% since the 1980s. Did you know that? Because you know what trees like? Carbon dioxide. I know for a fact that every time a baby's born, we don't have to cut down more trees. And I know for a fact, because I've seen it. I've seen the baby trees, I've seen the deforested parts. I know every inch of Tiger Mountain, for example, which is a place, it's a state forest, but it's a place where we do harvest timber. And I can tell you firsthand, because I've seen it with my own eyes that they do a great job of planting more trees than they cut down, they just do. The Lord is good, he has given us a good solid creation and that creation replenishes itself. I see that, I'm watching it. If you don't believe me, come out of your suburb, come out of your house, come to my house, we'll go on a hike on Tiger Mountain, I'll show you. Be like, look, trees, they're everywhere. I don't understand this. I don't understand these arguments. I don't understand the, the being concerned about the weight of human bodies on the earth. They, we don't add more mass to the earth. The law of conservation of matter says that matter is neither created nor destroyed. That weight that your body carries was already on the earth somewhere else and now it's right here, okay? The earth isn't like, whoa, it's getting heavy up there. I, I, saw, I saw also the CBC of Canada on June 12th released an article said, oh, is overpopulation killing the planet? And then the rhetorical answer to that is yes, that's the idea, The overpopulation is this colossal problem, it's gonna end the world unless we intervene, and by intervene, they mean abort all the babies. Now, they rightly called out India and China. India, in the 1970s, enforced forced sterilization upon people, it was brutal and inhumane. China enforced a limit on the number of children that people could have, and they would actually lead, this would lead to compulsory abortion. And this article written by this crazy liberal, like far left Canadian publication said that that was wrong. But then guess what their suggestion was at the very end of the article? So have abortions because this saves the world. All right, this, this view, it, it divides the amount of, it, it divides the carbon dioxide output per human. Okay, it presumes that every human has a carbon footprint and that increases with the number of babies that you have. I'm of the radical view that carbon dioxide is produced by things that produce carbon dioxide. Okay? We may breathe it in and breathe it out, but we do not, with our breath, reduce the amount of, like we don't, we don't make a meaningful contribution to the amount of CO2 in the world. They're, they're, they make no mention of things like nuclear energy. They also commit the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, looking at the growth of the population and seeing how it is also correlated with an increase of CO2 into the atmosphere. And it's automatically attributed somehow not to the things that put out CO2, but to babies being born. They're blaming the babies for the things that CO2-emitting devices are doing. And yes, some of you have seen my car. I am doing my part to burn a hole through the ozone layer. Now, that's the wrong metric. It's also a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Did you know that everyone who ate ice cream in the year 1800 is dead now? See? After this, therefore, because of this, post hoc ergo propter hoc. It's a fallacy. It's the wrong metric. Stop blaming babies for things. Dividing it per human is also fallacious because for example, Africa is responsible for a huge percentage of the population of the earth and yet their their O2 output remains lower than ours. They're having more babies and putting out less CO2. It's not the right metric. And I have always been colossally skeptical of the doomsday prophecies that come from skeptics. I read a study by the head of the department at Harvard University who said, we have 20 years to curb climate change before the world ends. That was, in, that was published in 1970. Okay, look, I get it. I recycle, I recycle more than you. I win, okay? I've got more kids than you. I shop at Costco more. I'm doing my part, okay? I'm offsetting my car, <laughs> All right, I love nature, I love creation. I know it better than you do, okay? My environmentalist friend, I'm the one who was told by God to steward creation, to handle creation. I bear the weight of that as a believer in God more than you do. I get it, but I'm not gonna buy the doomsday prophecies, okay? I saw Al Gore's documentary. It showed my hometown that I was born in underwater 20 years ago. It's still doing fine. That thing won Oscars. (laughs) That documentary, (laughs) All right, over and over and over again. The world's ending, the world's ending, the world's ending, the world's ending, the world's ending. Shut up, Christians, about your book of Revelation. The world's ending, the world's ending. You've got your own doomsday prophecies. And to attribute it to, of all things in the world, babies being born. This is absurd. And I did some basic division. I did not not conceive this idea of my own. Dr. John MacArthur is the one who first said this in a message that I heard, and I was like, wait a minute, is that true? And so I had to do just like some, some basic math. Okay, some of you are teachers, all right? I know one of you watching online is a calculus tutor. You can check my math on this and let me know if this is accurate. Dr. MacArthur said the entire world's population could fit on Rhode Island. And I was skeptical of this. I know that the world's population is over 8 billion now. And so using 8 billion as my rough metric, I know that Rhode Island is 776,960 acres. Okay, that is... 33,884,377,600 square feet. In scientific notation, that's 3.38 times 10 to the 10th square feet. There are 8 billion people in the world. So... 33,844,377,600 33,844,377,600 divided by 8 billion people came to each human having a 4.23 square foot area to stand on. That is a square whose sides are 2.056696380120313 feet long. You're like, hang on a second, Jesse. I would not be able to fit on a two foot by two foot square. It's okay. I've got kids they are small and they can have smaller squares than yours. Yes, every human being who is alive could fit in the smallest state in the US. Take the population of the world, 8 billion people, and consider how far we'd have to stand apart in Washington state. All right? So in Washington state, we consider, you know, the overall metric, we consider that it is 1.9895 trillion square feet. Every single living human being on the planet right now from Tokyo to Hong Kong to New York City to Sao Paulo to Mumbai to Los Angeles to Seattle could all stand on perfectly even squares in the state of Washington and we would all be 15.76982878791016 feet apart. Every living human could stand 15 feet apart from one another and fit in Washington State. <laughs> so we, we have plenty of room. I knew this when I drove across the state of Kansas. There's plenty of room. Everybody who's like, overpopulation is killing everybody, lives in a giant city. Like, walk a block. The truth is that there is plenty of room. There's plenty of room. Now, every one of us, obviously, we need roads to drive on and those roads sometimes need bridges and we need houses. We need a little bit more than two feet. So it's just a thought experiment to show you how much room there actually is. Overpopulation is not a problem. We have abundant resources. We have, especially in the U.S., have an overabundance of resources. Starvation, hunger, and poverty, these are symptoms of systemic problems stemming from corruption, within third world governments, and sometimes stemming from the individual's own afflictions. We have an overabundance of resources, especially here in the US. We have more than enough farmland to feed everyone. All right, we have plenty. There is nothing unethical about wanting to have babies. So if you are a married couple in the redemption church and you are hoping to have children and it's not working out just yet, let me disabuse you of that notion that you are evil for wanting to have a child. Look, they are cloaking themselves as the saviors of the world while telling people to have abortions and speaking against large families. You are just doing what God called us to do, being fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So there's nothing, nothing Nothing wrong with having babies. And I would say that it is wickedly unethical to encourage abortion, speak against families, lying as you do and cloaking oneself as the savior of the world. So to this point, can we be honest about something real quick? There's not actually such thing as a surprise baby. Can we be honest about that? Can we be honest? Like, you know, there's no such thing as a surprise baby. <laughs> wow, how? You know how. You finished seventh grade, your parents had to talk with you. You know exactly how. Okay, you followed the instructions. Okay? So don't, let's be honest about that. Let's be honest about that, all right? and like Unless you struggle with infertility, then a baby is a surprise baby, right? Or if you are using, for example, contraceptive measures, and you still have a baby. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about contraceptives too. Here's the QR code. You can get all of my cross references from. It's right here. All right, and I want to begin with Genesis 1.22. God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. God just said this over all of creation. He said this to humanity as well. Be fruitful, multiply. And by the way, this word multiply, here's the funny thing. It's, it's probably not really... Until you've had three kids at least that you've multiplied. Because if you're married, you have two kids, you've just replaced yourself. See what I'm saying? All right, so Christians, crank them out. We have to keep up with the Muslims. <laughs> Genesis 29:31. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel wasn't able to conceive. There's infertility in the narrative of Scripture. Leah was neglected. Poor Leah. Oh man. We know that we know that Jacob was the trickster and he ends up getting tricked himself. And he marries Leah, but he really wanted to marry Rachel. And Leah is I mean according to scripture, she's the less attractive sister. And then when Jacob does end up marrying Rachel, guess what that means? Leah, her whole life has been living in the shadow of her more attractive younger sister. And now she's married, but then guess what happens? Now her husband, outside of the will of God, marries her more attractive younger sister. So guess what? Now her whole entire life, she's gotta be there with her sister and she's gotta be living in the shadows of it. Leah was neglected, but then look at what the Lord did in Genesis 29, 31. He opened her womb. But then Leah remains unable to conceive until Genesis 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. God is able. God is sovereign over every soul who is created. God is able. You are not alone. You are not unrepresented. If you struggle with infertility, know this, the stats on miscarriage initially were published that 25% of women of childbearing age have had a miscarriage. While my wife and I have never experienced that, we did have a child who passed away. And so I may not, may not be able to relate directly to the experience of miscarriage. I didn't know exactly what it's like to bury your baby this was so deeply personal for me, it became the subject of my doctoral dissertation. And so in researching more of this, I learned that it's actually more like 30%. In fact, here's the, here's the source for the, for the stat. According to the American Medical Association, 30% of women of childbearing age have had miscarriages. If you struggle with infertility in some cases is that you, you hope to become pregnant and then you're not able to become pregnant. But sometimes you are able to become pregnant, but then not able to carry the baby to term which is another heartbreaking experience because there's this baby who is conceived and grows in the mother's womb and then passes. This raises other questions as well. This raises other questions, other ethical questions. One in eight couples cannot get pregnant or stay pregnant. There are over six million people in the US who struggle with infertility. 30% of the time, it's because the husband cannot father children 30% 30% of the time, it's the bride who faces a challenge in fertility. And then the other, uh, another, you know, remaining, remaining 60, 40% of the time, we don't know. We just don't know. As a pastor, I have a unique perspective on this because I have a larger sample group than most. Having been a pastor to several thousand people across the U.S. over the years, I've gotten to know people... And I have some advice. Some of it's because I've put my own foot in my own mouth a few times. And some of it's just, I mean, it's really just come, comes from listening to, to couples who have struggled with this and who have faced this. Uh, don't ask couples if they're trying because that's awkward, <laughs> okay? Don't ask. Please also, I would say just based on my experience working with couples who have struggled with infertility, please don't give them suggestions. That's even more awkward. <laughs> Okay, look, they've studied it. They've read every article. They are more consumed with this in their thoughts than you are, all right? Even if it's intended to help, even if it's intended to help. Here's what's really big on the minds of the the couples that I've known who struggle with infertility. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And so it begs the question, why is God not giving us this blessing? you may inadvertently play the part of Job's stupid friends. Job is afflicted. Job is suffering. We as the reader know why. It's because of his righteousness. He's been singled out by Satan. That's why he loses everything. And his friends all crowd around him and they say, oh, it's, it's gotta be because of sin in your life. You must've done something wrong. And then God shows up and is like, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Like God speaks to this group, don't be like Job's friends and start trying to spiritually prescribe why the couple you know and love are not getting pregnant because you don't know. You don't know physiologically, you don't know medically, you don't know spiritually. Don't try to speak on God's behalf. You don't know, you don't know. If you have suffered child loss, I can tell you this is, this was the, at the very core of the conference that my wife and I started for bereaved parents called Aiden's Hope. That's you if you've lost a child, no matter how old, we have something for you. Aiden's Hope. You can go to AidensHope.org. If you suffered miscarriage, you struggle with infertility, you've, you've lost a child, there is healing in only one thing the gospel of Jesus Christ nothing else will do. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, you find eternal healing for your soul in heaven above. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may see your child again. And I will try to make the biblical case for why I believe that every baby who dies goes to heaven. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can find a redemptive purpose in your suffering. You can turn your pain into a ministry you can help others with the same affliction, see the fruit that it bears, and in that, find a redemptive purpose for your pain, taking what the enemy intended for evil and using it for beautiful, beautiful good. So here is Judges chapter 13. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. All right. I promise I'm not going to stop at every single verse. I will never, will never be able to beat the Catholics to the restaurants. But I do have to say something about this. Forty years, man. Forty years. We've seen these periods of time come up all over the Book of Judges. This is a time of suffering. Okay. We've seen the Lord put people under suffering. Look. Look who. Who is it that handed them over to the Philistines? Look at that text. What does it say, Redemption Church? The Lord did. The Lord allowed them to endure this suffering. In his sovereignty, he knew exactly how long it would last. That can be doom and gloom, but do you also see how there's healing in that? The Lord has already set the expiration date for the suffering. He's not a sadist. There's a reason for this. There is discipline Now, it would be futile, unwise, and unbiblical for a pastor to say that we're not living in the end times. Okay, if one conflates the meanings of the terms the end times and the last days, the last days refers to the days between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, so we're definitely in the last days. However, it's worth noting that God's short-term corporate judgment, mostly on lost nations and his discipline on nations containing his people, could look apocalyptic when they're actually short-term. Okay, if you, uh, if you lived in the era of the judges and if the book of Revelation had been written at that point in time, you might've looked around and thought like, oh, these are the last days, right? It, it, look, it, historically, when Christians have been absolutely certain that they were seeing the end times, what they were actually experiencing was a corporate level, national level form of discipline from God like this. The rumors of wars and the wars were actually God establishing kings on their thrones, so to speak. However, again, it would be foolish to semi-dismissed signs of the times as though they were short-term, Deuteronomic seasons of discipline and not apocalyptic end times because our responses to both would be the same. I'm simply saying that there have been generations of Christians in the past who were utterly convinced, this is it, man, Jesus is coming in five minutes. Kids, get in the van. Why, I don't know, buckle up. They're absolutely convinced of it. What they were actually experiencing was something like this, just the discipline of God. But again, here's Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. So what I would say is that God does discipline on the corporate level, and the national level. And it's possible to mistake what is actually God's discipline upon a nation or his people or his wrath upon a given society for signs of the absolute in times. This was, this was a season of discipline that God wrought uh, upon his own people. There was a certain man from Zora, from the family of Dan whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord, and we're gonna talk about exactly what this means, appeared to the woman and said to her, although you are unable to conceive and have no children, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Okay, there it is, the promise from God to a woman who struggled with infertility, you're gonna have a son. Now, this is remarkable because it's in scripture and it's in scripture because it's remarkable, it's miraculous. It is the sovereign hand of God reaching into Our world, which has been fractured by original sin. We're no longer in Eden where everything was perfect. Things are imperfect. And here, in this sin-stained world, awaiting redemption and resurrection one day, which God has promised to bring, we do suffer. My niece, Elle, died of cancer. She was three, okay? In this world, we suffer. There are thorns, there are thistles. It's not the perfection of Eden. And it's all because of the symptoms of sin on a fallen world. If you struggle with infertility and God does not give you children, I wanna share Psalm 84, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. God is not withholding good from you. And this doesn't just apply to those who struggle with infertility and are asking that question, God, why are you withholding something good from me? It could also speak to those who, man, you don't know why your income isn't higher than it is. Look, God's not withholding good things from you. If he's withholding it from you, there is a reason. You trust God. He's sovereign. He knows also consider this in Isaiah 56, verse three. No foreigner has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch, okay? Now, I know that there's a contextual leap you have to make, all right, and I'm not conflating the two. But the truth is that eunuchs are permanently infertile, do you see? And if you grew up in a pagan nation and were made a eunuch, And now the people of God come in and now you assimilate into the people of God in the book of Isaiah. We studied this. It's called Holy Dissident. If you want to find that series, we went verse by verse through this colossal prophetic book and it was incredible. But if you were assimilated into the people of God as is being described here in Isaiah 56 and you were a eunuch, you were physiologically rendered, intentionally rendered sterile. And now it comes to you, I'll never... I'll never be a dad. You should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. You had people who were made eunuchs, and then they became—they were assimilated into the people of God. And what God promised them was, "Look, I've got a legacy for you that's better than children." This is what God spoke in Isaiah 56. There's another example here. Here's, here's, um, oh excuse me, let me let me continue through the Isaiah uh, 56 te- text. As for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him to love the name of the Lord and to become his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold firmly to my covenant. I will bring them into my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for them. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is the declaration of the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel. I will gather them still, others besides those already gathered. So the Lord had... He had had a promise, he had a legacy for those who were unable to have children. We see Simeon, we see Anna in the Gospels whose ministries are deep and profound, who got to hold baby Jesus when he was only eight days old, speak a prophecy over him that ministered to the heart of Mary. We know Anna's name. This This is a deep and meaningful ministry. This is the ministry of Paul the Apostle all right, in 1 Samuel, this is actually, this is quite relevant to the book of Judges right here because this is how the book of Judges really comes to a close. Samuel could be argued to be, in some form, in some interpretation, the final judge, but he definitely is the first prophet. Here's 1 Samuel. He had two wives, the first named Hannah The second, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up, from his town every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Wherever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Do You see this? The Lord is the one who had kept Hannah, from conceiving. You Gotta trust God. He is sovereign. Her rival would taunt her severely. Can you imagine? For a woman to not have children in the Seattle area means like that you are some sort of like driven go-getter. And for a woman to not have children in this culture was a mark of shame. And to be so cruel as to mock Hannah At the very point of her greatest pain, it was unthinkable. I can imagine the colossal weight of the emotional burden that was on this poor woman's heart. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. There it is again. Remember, God's in control. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply heard, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. We're gonna talk about what this means today. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you gonna be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. When we did our our brief sermon on the sons of Korah, we cited this text. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Look at that. That is some serious prayer right there. From the depth of my anguish and resentment. There are imprecatory psalms where we can see the psalmist is just pouring his guts out. And we can see psalms that the psalmist knew were not prayers that God would answer, but they expressed and articulated exactly what was on the psalmist's heart. So there's a, there, there are two schools of thought on this. On one hand, it's true. God is holy. He is sovereign. He is the omnipotent one. You go before him and you fail not to tremble at who he is. And then we see in the Psalms as well, genuine outpourings from the heart. You can even observe immaturity in the lyrics of some Psalms, for example. What we know is that from the depth of her anguish and her resentment, okay? The fact that the word resentment is here indicates that she's thinking about her sister wife, okay? She's got anguish because all she wants is to be a mother, And she's got resentment because she's being tormented by somebody else because of it. So not only does she have to deal with infertility, she has got a lot to forgive. And make no mistake, a lack of forgiveness is cancer to your soul and destructive to your joy more than anything in this life. Okay, if you haven't forgiven someone else for the way that they've hurt you, you'll notice your prayer life is stifled. All right, how were we taught to pray? This is Vacation Bible School basic. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who, yeah, our, our trespass. That's right, it's old school. I like it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiving others and asking God forgiveness go one in the same in prayer. So she's got resentment, she's got anguish. Eli responded, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Remember, the Lord is sovereign. He creates every soul that exists. He foreknows every action that we will take, even reproductively. He knows. He simply knows. This is why I am opposed to abortion in every case, including instances of rape and incest, because every single baby is made in the image of God. And even unwanted humans are still prima facie fully fledged members of the human species. And it is always wrong to kill a baby in the womb, especially for the crimes of his father. It is always wrong. I believe that every human is in fact, follow me on this, human. The next morning Elkanah And Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel. She said, I requested him from the Lord. This is the happy ending waiting on us at the end of the book of Judges. This is where the Lord begins to redeem the dumpster fire that is the nation of Israel during this era. God was near Hannah. If you're struggling with infertility and God hasn't brought you a child, pour your heart out to him. Let it draw you nearer to the throne of God. This is one good thing that would come from your struggle, that you, like Hannah, would pour your heart out before God. And who knows? It very well could be that God miraculously intervenes in your story as he did in Hannah's. And if God does give you children, okay, one discussion that needs to be a part of all of this is adoption. It could be through adoption, but you need to do that with eyes wide open. My wife and I made it into, I want to say it was like the third or fourth step of the pre-approval process to adopt a baby girl from China. This was early on, earlier on in our marriage, and then when we found out we were pregnant with twins, the adoption agency said, okay, you're gonna have your hands full. <laughs> and so this was something that my wife and I were praying about ourselves, and that we made we made decent headway into. Right? So consider this, consider this though. Uh, the couples that we spoke with who had adopted were all giving us fair warning. You need to know, you need to, you need to have a heads have eyes wide open. You do bring into your life a whole new, unique set of challenges with adoption. But wow, the story of adoption does bear a beautiful resemblance to the gospel, doesn't it? Even the word adoption is used in the epistles. There was a study done by resolve.org. This is is part of the, the National Infertility Association. It was claimed in 1973. There's this trend, and we notice it because we pray for couples who are infertile, and we praise God when they adopt, and then we praise God when, have you ever seen this? It seems like, it just seems like Couples who struggle with infertility will adopt a child and then get pregnant. Okay, here's the thing. The National Infertility Association study showed that the fertility rate was the same among couples who adopted and couples who did not adopt. We just noticed the stories of the families who adopt a child and then have a biological child. So this is another potentially potentially difficult spot. If you struggle with infertility, please, also, show grace to people because recognize the intent, all right? They want to bless you. They want to love you. They want to rejoice with you. They're, they're, they're blessed by the fact that you've adopted. They're blessed by the fact that you now have another child post-adoption. Okay, so please, please don't like be hidden behind this invisible minefield and be like, choose wisely, friend. Like, be gracious, be gracious, be gracious. But also know this, there, there can be a sore subject in this as well for Couples who have adopted a child and then they have a biological child, it can sometimes sound like, okay, now you've got the real kid. You see what I'm saying? All right? No. I know that couples who adopt praise God for the child who's in their life. Okay? They adopt, and this is how God writes the story of their families adoption in the Bible. We've been through the book of Ruth, we know how this goes. And it's true, were it not for their infertility, they may not have applied for, ado- uh, go- gone through the adoption process. But understand, absolutely, the fertility rate is actually no higher for in- uh, couples who previously struggled with infertility post-adoption than it is for those who do not adopt. So it's another, it's another potential way that you can minister to families who struggle uh, with infertility okay they bring a new member into their family thereby redeeming their pain turning it into something beautiful that would have otherwise not come about but there's another complication within this i i went uh, i i was i was in cinderella's wedding i know that sounds weird it's a true statement i'll explain we lived in orlando she was the actress who pretended to be cinderella at the magic kingdom she was on the disney world commercials not so long ago she married one of my friends, Aaron. I was a groomsman. So I was in Cinderella's wedding. You know, Aaron's a solid Christian dude. And so when a solid Christian dude has a bonfire or uh, a bachelor party, what that really means is he has a bonfire. <laughs> and so the night before the wedding, all the groomsmen are there with Aaron, built like a huge bonfire. It's not as big as the bonfires that the students of the Redemption Church will build. Good grief, those are the biggest I've ever seen. But it was a decent sized one. There's a man there. He's a chief of surgery at the local hospital. They had three kids. God had blessed them. They said, you know what? We've got a great family. Let's adopt and let's bring more kids into this great family that we have. And he said, I was colossally wrong. He said, I, what I really needed to do was destroy my family. And then their family needed to be destroyed and then the rubble of these two families needs to be combined and built up into a brand new family that resonated with me he had no idea some of the struggles that these children whom he adopted would have it wasn't until the daughter was well into elementary school they realized she had an IQ of 80 some learning disabilities she struggled with some issues that were brought on by her mother's addictions none of this was knowable at the time The dynamic between his biological children and his adopted children was not healthy, was not happy. He went from having a happy home where everything worked well to suddenly it was a disaster zone. And so he said, you know what? We need to just do away with everything we knew about our family before. And we need to build a brand new family from scratch. Adoption can be incredibly, incredibly hard. So Jesse, what about IVF? What about in vitro fertilization? Look, God's sovereign. He has perfect foreknowledge. If he did not have foreknowledge, he would not be omniscient. He knows exactly how the story goes. In fact, he's the author of the story. You're not gonna do anything that's going to catch God off guard. He foreknows every decision that you're going to make, including what medical methods you may resort to. And even those medical methods, by the way, they're worthless without God's design, okay? That's all we're really doing is trying to, to mitigate the effects of a sin-stained world in which things don't work perfectly, but the designer was perfect. And, and one thing I do know, you're not gonna catch God off guard. He's not, he's not gonna stop being sovereign. You're not gonna make a decision like IVF and God's gonna be like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Like, look, he's already written how the story ends. One thing you do need to consider as a couple is embryos and snowflake babies. Okay, be prepared. This is something... That you, as as a couple, are gonna to have to pray about. I have been approached by numerous couples who have gone through this. I I once, uh, I once preached a, a pro-life sermon, and there was a couple that came up to me and they said, "Jesse, what the Lord laid on our heart was, you know, we had IVF a few years ago, and we have our children." And we still have these snowflake babies. These are fertilized human embryos, a unique human genome that has never existed in the history of the human species and never will again. So what do you do? What they felt convicted to do was to put these babies up for adoption. I spoke with another couple who was struggling with infertility, and, and we we talked about we talked about IVF, and their decision was to not go through with it. Because what if you have IVF treatment and you end up with like eight basically just snowflake babies. You cannot afford to care for all of them. You put them up for adoption, and that means that you know that somewhere out there in the world, there are these, I don't know, five or six other children who are genetically connected to you forever. They're like, we're not prepared to deal with that. So they actually chose not to go through with IVF. So, so consider this, consider this. So Jesse, if infertility is so common, why do so many people struggle with miscarriages? Is that like God performing an abortion? I know that this is something that's out there because I've, I've seen this question asked. Here's Romans 8, here's verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. This is Romans 8 describing where things like not just infertility come from, but any disease. This is where cancer comes from. This is, this is where destructive storms come from. This is where our suffering brought on by the natural world, comes from. This is it, right here. You read Romans 8, you look up, and you see exactly what you should expect to see based on what you've just read. Creation was subjected to futility. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for, everybody say this word, with me right here this is an important important word what does it say it adoption and hey this is another really important word can you say this with me say it redemption see I'm telling you like adoption is used in the epistles to describe how salvation works now in this hope we are saved but hope that is not a uh, uh, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Amen? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is how God pre-knows, foreknows every one of our stories. He's already seen how the story goes. And for the foundations of the earth, he's determined that those who are in him will be called by God, will be justified before him, will be glorified one day in heaven. But in the meantime, creation groans. Cancer, disease, infertility, these are things that we suffer because of a symptom of fallout of original sin. Right? We know this, we know this. So Jesse, what is the eternal fate of babies who are miscarried? Do they all go to heaven? How do we know that? Where does the age of accountability doctrine come from? Have you ever heard of that before? Have you ever heard of this idea of the age of accountability doctrine? The age of accountability doctrine is this idea. It's not really attributed to any particular early church father or biblical scholar. It's just this idea that says, if you die before a certain age, you always go to heaven. What age is it? We don't know. The Jews think it might be 13. Let's go with that but that's not scriptural, that's traditional. The bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, that's something that's traditional. Here's what scripture says, right? God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I taught this to my kids. I have them go like this motion. All right, we know, this, we know it's true, but shh, 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 I don't wanna hear the truth. I don't wanna know it's true. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Here's what I believe. Unborn babies do not suppress the truth. You see? While they're born with a natural proclivity unto sin, What they have not done is suppress the truth. Moreover, Jesus weighed in on this. Matthew chapter 18, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is great, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is a stupid question. He called a small child, the Greek word here is pardion, it could refer to an infant, and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Why? Because that child is his. And someone causing a child to disavow the gospel and disbelieve is evidently in Jesus' words. Jesus didn't, it was rare for him to speak this way. And he's talking about someone who leads a little one astray. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Bloggers, If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. Do you see why I believe babies go to heaven? What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go to search for the stray? We think of this about somebody who hasn't been in church for a while. Jesus was holding a small child when he said it. He's articulating his heart toward children, his children. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more uh, uh, more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In that same way, Everybody, can you just say these words with me? Because I think that they are incredibly important. Say it with me. It is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's why I believe babies go to heaven when they die. Because Jesus said, it's not God's will that even one little one should perish. This is what I believe happens to babies who are miscarried. That's what I believe happens to babies who are aborted too. Jesse, does that just become a heavenly rationale for abortion? No, no, because as we saw last week, God has decreed when you kill someone, their blood cries up from the ground to God for justice. God required in the Old Testament human blood to be spilled if human blood is spilled. Here's Matthew 19. Jesus has more to say. Then the little children were brought to Jesus for him to place, on his hands and, uh, place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the little children alone and don't keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven, say these words with me, Redemption Church, belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. I believe every child that you've miscarried is in glory in the arms of God, safe and waiting for you. This is why the words of Jesus, this is why, this is what God thinks of children. This is how he feels about your baby. So Jesse, are these miscarriages, are they God's discipline on my life? There's only one biblical example of God disciplining one of his people through the death of a child. It's brutal, but I want you to hear it from the word of God rather than from some wicked parroted version. I gave this teaching at the first Aidan's Hope conference and I I was dreading it because it's such a hard text. Oh, I was dreading it. I barely slept the night before. And it was because of this text, I was like, God, I don't wanna get up in front of a room full of parents who have lost children and read those words to them. But the takeaway, the takeaway, when I read it, was an altar filled with parents coming before the Lord to confess sin. It was beautiful. Here's what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Okay, and here I go, I feel the same way right now. Redemption Church, you guys trust me, I just wanna say what the word of God says. Can I read this difficult passage to you? This is what the text says. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so Nathan came to David and confronted him over sin. He used a parable to draw David in. That's probably pretty smart. If you're gonna confront the most powerful man in the world over his sin who has just killed a guy, maybe don't walk in, kick the door down, and say, time to repent, okay, because you're probably next. Nathan instead uses a story, draws David in. David sees his reflection in the bad guy in the story, comes to the horrific realization, oh no, I have sinned against the Lord. This is where Psalm 32 comes from. This is where Psalm 51 comes from, the confession, the repentance, Then Nathan replied to David, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. After Aidan died, my wife and I got on our knees and we prayed God, is this discipline on our lives? Is this discipline for sin? we repent, we confess, whatever it is. I began delving heartily into the scripture because I wanted to know why this happened. And I wanted the source of my wisdom to be the word of God alone. And Spirit confirmed as I studied this deeply, what I saw was that Aiden's story was more like that of the man born blind in John 9. He was born blind so that others would see God had set the stage for a series of miracles in Aiden's life, but he ultimately passed away. Medical advancements launched from the clinical field trial that started Aiden's care have led to life-saving measures, and we've been able to hear the voice of the first recipient of a 3D-printed tracheal implant. Sometimes our children die because of sin. That was the case for David. Sometimes our children die because God has set the stage for a miracle. Sometimes our children die because like Job, we're under attack from the enemy. But God knows exactly what it is to lose a child. It was for sin that David's son died. And it was for sin that David's capital S son died. Do you see the foreshadowing of the cross here? It would be a son of David, Jesus who would die to atone for sin. When we shared this at the Aiden's Hope conference, the response blessed my heart. I was dreading it, because I didn't want to be misunderstood. And I did catch flack, but it was all from pastors on my staff at the time. This is the text, this is what the word says, And, and what the Spirit did in our hearts was, you know what? I need to go before the Lord, I need to confess everything. And so, like, going through a house and just ripping open every closet door and saying, Holy Spirit, come in, come in. I confess this. I've been hiding that. I've been fudging the numbers here. I've been getting away with that. You got, the Holy Spirit of God, just come rush in and fill every room. I'm sorry for my sin. Every last one of them, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. And so I don't know. I don't know the reason why you have suffered miscarriages if you suffered miscarriages. I don't know why. I cannot presume to speak for God. I can only say what the word of God says. That was the case for David. But I do know that only good comes from acknowledging the word of God, hearing it in all its fullness, seeing how it points forward to Jesus and applying your life to it by confessing every last sin. Only good comes from this practice. We confess, we confess, we confess. So Jesse, what about surrogacy? What are the ethics of surrogacy? What are the ethics of IVF? Aren't there good things that come from IVF when we have IVF and we have multiple embryos? Can't we subject our embryos to study? Haven't there been life-saving medicines developed from the embryos of IVF treatment? The answer to that is a resounding no. There have not been any medical advancements made from the mutilation of human embryos embryonic stem cell research has yielded nil. However, adult stem cell research has yielded some of the most exciting advancements in the history of medicine. Stem cells are these multipurpose modular cells that can become anything that they need to. Babies in the embryonic stage are just nothing but stem cells except for one cell that begins to pulsate right at the beginning. Uh But other than that, they're just, they're just stem cells because they need to be, this needs to become a head. This needs to become an arm and, and, a, and a leg. And, and then adults, we have stem cells too. And our stem cells, harvested largely from, say, like our bone marrow, or this is why some people have kept up the weird practice of keeping their umbilical cords all their lives because they're full of stem cells. They'll come in handy later. I need to grow a new arm. Adult stem cell research has advanced medicine like crazy. Embryonic stem cell research has yielded nothing. I would encourage you, if you have gone through IVF, if you have babies who are currently waiting for their turn, pray about what God has next. There are other, it could very well be that you are the answer to the question of another couple in this room who's struggling with infertility, do you see? So what about surrogate mothers, Jesse? Here's what happens in Genesis 16. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she, was, she, she, she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar. She became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Okay, in the story of Abram and Hagar and Sarai, this was trying to jump the gun on God's will. God knew exactly what would happen, God redeemed. Ishmael became the progenitor of a very important nation and race. So the Lord wasn't caught off guard by the story with Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. But if surrogacy is something that you believe God may have laid on your heart, I would encourage you, I would encourage you, be mindful, be ever mindful of the effect that such an approach would have on the surrogate mother. Be considerate. Try to see long-term. Think prayerfully, with the word of God as your primary guide. If the spirit lays it on your heart that this is what you should do, I'm here to support you and pray for you, but do consider the ethical implications. Always, always consider the surrogate mother. Here's Judges chapter four. Here's why, here's why not a hair would be cut on the baby's head. Now, please be careful not to drink wine or encourage members of the Redemption Church to tell their small group right away if you find out that you're pregnant. 30% of women of childbearing age have had miscarriages and they skip the Mother's Day service because they don't want to be there for it. We give roses to every woman who walks in the door on Mother's Day, no questions asked because we don't know your story But if you're a part of a small group and if you aren't join one, if you find out that you're pregnant, tell the small group right away. I would encourage you, don't wait 12 to 13 weeks when the fatality rate decreases. Tell everybody right away so they can celebrate that God has made new life and then they can grieve with you if the worst should happen. I don't want the women of the Redemption Church to bear miscarriage alone. Redemption Church, are you with me in this? That's what I encourage you to do. That's what I encourage you to do. Tell your small group the day you find out that you're pregnant and they can celebrate with you. And then they can also be there for you if the worst should happen. If you've lost a child, you've, you've been separated from the one dearest to you, I've got the only hope for you right here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with us? The only way that you'll see your child again is if what we've read from Jesus' words about children are true, and if you are in Christ. I want you to pray with me right here and now, not trying to use your grief for your child's death. I want you to know the truth I believe that your baby is in heaven and I believe and I know the only way for you to be in heaven too is through Jesus. So your desire to be with your child again will not reunite you with your child. Your union with Christ, your confession that he's Lord will symptomatically lead to your union with your child in heaven. It cannot be for fear of separation forever that you are saved. It is by the Holy Spirit convicting and a confession of the truth that Jesus is Lord. Pray with me right now if God's calling on your heart. God, I don't know if my story is like that of David. I don't know if the miscarriages that my family's experienced were disciplined from you like they were for David, but I do know, I do know that we live in an imperfect world and medical issues abound because of sin's effect on the world. And God, I do know that I have sinned. I know that much. I confess that I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, God, the wages of that sin is death. And I know that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So, drawn upon by the Holy Spirit of God, I confess the truth. Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, let me be saved, saved, saved. In Jesus' name, amen.